Hello, Darksiders. I hope you're all well. As you will have heard last week, today's episode is the last of season one. I'll be taking a short break to refresh the old grey matter. But don't worry, Darkside will be back soon enough, bringing stories of righting the wrongs and changing laws to your lovely ears. I do have to warn you, though, just like last week, today's episode contains graphic information about systemic racism, so listener discretion is advised. I also need to advise that all of today's reference and media content has been chosen because of its pertinence to the progression of the Fred Korematsu story. Other historical events that happen during certain points in the story have not been included, and this is not because they do not have validity and worth, but because they were not necessary for the story. Lastly, in using the media content that I have chosen, it in no way, shape or form reflects my personal opinion or political persuasion, and shows no bias or sway for or against any political party. <sighs> Legally's over. So with that said, we can now, finally, get on with the show. We left off last week with Fred Korematsu having lost his battle against the Supreme Court for unlawful internment of Japanese Americans after the attack on Pearl Harbor. A loss that he considered to be tantamount to legalized racism. A loss that proved America only loved those citizens whose faces fit. He took the loss of the trial so deeply that Fred delved into a life of anonymity, shying away from interviews and attention so that he could focus on rebuilding his life and healing the wounds left over from the court case and the internment. He married and moved from Detroit to California back to his birthplace of Oakland in the late 1940s and lived a normal, unassuming life. That was until one day in 1967 when a young girl found out about Fred's story and confronted him. This would start Fred on a path that would finally see him break his anonymity and silence after 30 years and start the journey once again to right the wrongs done to him. A journey that would eventually make a government capitulate and finally bring justice to Fred and the other 120,000 Japanese Americans. This is Darkseid and I am your host, Suze. So, just who was this young girl that set in motion this chain of events? And just how did this start Fred on a journey to resume his battle for justice? Hmm. Let's find out. When our daughter Karen was, uh, I believe, a junior in high school, she came home from uh, one afternoon and said that in her social studies class, her friend Maya had given a report about the Japanese-American concentration camps, and that um, they mentioned the Korematsu case, and she said, what is this all about? <laughs> and I said, well, that's your father. Karen was Fred's daughter, and at 17 years of age, she was only just finding out that her father was a famous figure. She was desperate to ask him all about it, and was completely dumbfounded that she'd not heard anything about this story before now. However, 
when she got home, Fred was still at work. Bursting at the seams, she questioned her mother. But all she received in return was, Wait till your father gets home and you can ask him. And so she waited and paced and waited and paced until her father finally came home at 8pm. As soon as he walked in the door, she pounced on him, asking him the same question she'd asked her mother. No sooner had the words left her lips when she saw the smile slip from her father's face. His body stiffened, a look of hurt ran across his face, and his eyes filled with sorrow. And after a long pause, he placed his hand on his daughter's arm and said, It happened a long time ago, and what he did he thought was right, and the government was wrong. And with that, her father's pose loosened. He patted her on the arm and made his way to the kitchen. And Karen knew that the conversation was over. She couldn't ask any more questions. But Karen was full of questions. What had her father done that had made him such an historic figure? She was desperate to know more. But it was very evident that this wasn't something that was up for discussion. And out of respect for her parents, she didn't ask them again. In fact, it would be years before Karen did finally know the truth. It wasn't a conversation that was ever brought up. But that one short interaction with his daughter had sowed a seed. You see, Fred had carried a heavy burden for decades of feeling responsible for the stigma attached to Japanese Americans in the wake of Pearl Harbor and the internment, because he'd brought about so much attention to them all through his court case. Secondly, having this record given by the government, I just can't uh, feel that I am a truly American because of this. And that was back in my mind all, all these years. Fred had always wanted to challenge the case again, because he'd always felt that the final decision was wrong. And he wanted to prove to America that those of Japanese descent were citizens in the same right as other American citizens, that their faces did fit the profile of American citizenship. However, three things had always hindered him in pursuing the case again. One, he was afraid of reopening old wounds within the Japanese-American communities and facing ostracization again. Two, he had taken the loss of the first case so hard that he didn't feel he could go through the emotional upheaval again, as well as the feeling of utter betrayal if they lost again. But thirdly, even if he could get over the first two points, he didn't know how to go about reopening his case and getting all the way back to the Supreme Court. And so, Fred had locked the whole notion away in a mental box and had thrown away the key, gone to ground, and lived anonymity. But that innocuous conversation with his daughter had cracked open that box, and as time passed, the box cracked open more and more. The world was a very different place to what it had been like in the 1940s. There had been rock and roll that started to break down racial barriers in the 1950s. There had been the flower power movement in the 60s, which proffered peace and love. There had been another war that had rallied and divided the nation. Fred's name seemed to slowly seep back into the nation's conscience. 
civil rights groups had become more active in the 1960s and 70s. They held rallies and protests to fight injustices incurred by many different ethnic, religious and sexual orientation groups. And just like with the Nisei in the years preceding World War II, their rallying cries were permeating the nation, all the way to the top. And the injustice bestowed on Fred was very much a main focus of their campaigns. And so, on February 19th, 1976, Fred found himself thrust into the spotlight again, when, after much pressure from the civil rights groups, President Gerald Ford authorised. Today, I highlight Republican respect for civil liberties. I signed Proclamation 4177, formally rescinding Franklin Roosevelt's notorious Executive Order 9066, Japanese Americans were and are loyal Americans. On the battlefield and at home, the names of Japanese Americans have been and continue to be written in history for the sacrifices and the contributions they have made to the well-being and to the security of this, our common nation. I call upon the American people to affirm with me the unhyphenated American promise that we have learned from the tragedy of that long-ago experience forever to treasure liberty and justice for each individual American and resolve that this kind of error shall never be made again. And in its wake, there was a flurry of media activity, which Fred ignored. Why, I hear you ask? Well, because it wasn't the type of spotlight that Fred wanted. Yes, he was glad that the government had finally acknowledged the atrocity of the Japanese internment and revoked 9066. But it didn't eradicate the Supreme Court's decision, or his criminal conviction. They still loomed over him, and for Fred, it still loomed over the Japanese-American people also. Because without that decision being rescinded, he felt that the anti-citizen sentiment levered against them still hung over them. And this burned inside Fred. And after Ford's rescindment of 9066, he knew he couldn't live out his days with his guilt and burden weighing on him. But he still didn't know how to go about setting the wheels in motion to make the long trek back to the Supreme Court. But what he did see was a very different America emerging over the decades since the war. And he now felt that America might just be in the right place to accept that Japanese Americans were citizens in their own right, and that what had been done to them was wrong. And so, he set about researching how to start the ball rolling. But he didn't get far into the research, because fate would soon come knocking on his door. You see, what Fred didn't know at this point is that he wasn't the only one that had been thinking along these lines. In the early 1980s, two things happened that would set the course of history. In 1981, Peter Irons, a teacher of law at the University of Massachusetts, decided... I decided to write a book about these cases, sort of an academic book, really. And in the course of the research for that book, because I'd learned about these cases in law school, uh, in my constitutional law class, and we read them, and everybody agreed these were terrible cases, terrible decisions. My question was, how could this happen with all these liberal justices to make such a terrible mistake? Irons was going to cover quite a few cases that he considered to be a breach of civil liberties, 
but Fred's case was his particular focus. In order to write his book, Irons needed access to the court transcripts from the trials. He appealed to the Justice Department, and they happily handed over several boxes of files to him. He opened the first of Fred's boxes, and... What I did not expect to find was literally on the top of the first file, a document from one of the Justice Department lawyers to the Solicitor General of the United States saying, we are telling lies to the Supreme Court. We have an obligation to tell the truth to the court. Just so we're clear, the Solicitor General of the United States, who had argued Korematsu versus the United States before the Supreme Court, had deliberately suppressed reports from the FBI and military intelligence, which concluded that Japanese-American citizens posed no security risk. These documents revealed that the military had lied to the Supreme Court and that government lawyers had willingly made false arguments. <sighs> Unbelievable. And reading through these documents, Irons realised that the Supreme Court's decision against Fred Korematsu was invalid since it was based on unsubstantial assertions, distortions and misrepresentations. And he knew that he was the only person in the USA that held the evidence required to overturn the wrongful judgment in the Korematsu versus United States case. And so, he set out to find Fred. Around the same time, Fred's historic story had been told in schools all around the country, just as it had been in Karen's social science class in 1967. And in an America that, with the passing of each decade, was becoming more aware and progressive. The Sansei, which is a third-generation Japanese-Americans, like Karen, and the Yonsei, the fourth-generation Japanese-Americans, were recognising the civil injustice bestowed on their parents and grandparents. And they, too, now wanted to do something, to right the wrongs. And so, in the early 1980s, a group of young Yonsei lawyers had come together with the ACLU. In particular, Ernest Bessig, the lawyer that had originally taken Fred's case to the Supreme Court in 1944. And they too were trying to reach out to Fred, as they also wanted to take his case all the way back to the Supreme Court. Irons on the East Coast and a young group of Yonsei lawyers along with the ACLU on the West Coast came together and convened on Fred at the same time. They presented the new documents Irons had found and the backing they had from a more progressive America. And they had one question for Fred. Would he join them? I'm an American and, and as long as I'm in this country that I'm going to keep on going and if there is a chance of reopening the case, I will do it. And so... Along with a team of lawyers headed by Dale Minami, Irons petition for writs of error of Coram Nobis with the federal courts. Have you heard of Coram Nobis? No, neither had I. But it turns out that it originated in England in the 16th century and passed into American law. It is little used, not often remembered, and even became obsolete in England. And in all but 16 states in the USA. 
and it just so happened to still be an active law in California. So, what is quorum nobis? Quorum nobis means that you can go back to court even after you serve your sentence if you have evidence that the government has committed misconduct. Huh. Although penned some 400 years before, it is as if the law had been written just for Fred's case. Just as Fred's case had done in 1944, the upcoming trial grabbed media attention, and Fred found himself being forced out of 30 years of self-imposed obscurity and back into the spotlight. As I said before, it was a different America that Fred was now in, and this time around, the press were on his side, and in turn, the country was on his side. However, the Japanese-American community were wary. Back in the 1940s, they had not supported Fred's case because they felt it went against their quiet acquiescence to prove their loyalty to their country. They felt he made a spectacle of them back then, and when he lost against the Supreme Court, they felt he justified to the whole country why they should be treated as second-class citizens. But this time around, with the passage of time, they now understood why he made a stand against the injustice, and they now retrospectively supported him. But they were wary of reopening old wounds, of having their civil liberties come under scrutiny again. The lawyers on the legal team were mainly Japanese-American, and very young lawyers, very idealistic young attorneys. And the question was, if you're going to reopen these monumental Supreme Court cases, do you know what you're doing? And I think there was a sense in the community that uh, these lawyers better not lose Korematsu versus the United States for a second time. But Fred was resolute, as were the young Yonsei lawyers and the ACLU and Peter Irons. They had irrefutable evidence of the Supreme Court being lied to by the US Department of Justice. They knew they had an ironclad case. And so, these brave men sallied forth and filed their petition of Coram Nobis. And this sent the US Department of Justice into a tailspin. How was the government going to refute the evidence of wrongdoing and cover-up and suppression made by the government's own lawyers? To admit that the Supreme Court had been wrong? To admit that they had been lied to by their own self-appointed agents and agencies in order to facilitate a wrongdoing? Well, it was unprecedented and damaging to the government. And so, in trying to buy time to build a counter-argument, the Department of Justice stalled for time. They delayed the trial and stymied the process, whilst internally wrangling over how they were going to go about handling this case. Some within the Justice Department wanted to give in to the petition, and some wanted to fight it. But either way, the department had never been so divided. And this state of impasse went on for months, until... And after a period of two or three months, with no response... The government then approached uh, lead counsel Dale Manami and said, well, what about a pardon? Do you think Fred Korematsu would accept a pardon? The lawyers knew this was a get-out-of-jail-free move for the government. If Fred was pardoned, 
this whole partition would go away, and Korematsu versus the United States would quietly slip once again into the swirling fog of time, only to be remembered by the occasional 12th grade history class. Fred would be vindicated and exonerated and would no longer have a criminal record. It seemed like a win-win. The lawyers decided to approach Catherine first to gauge what Fred's response to the pardon would be before they approached him directly. Well, she looked at them incredulously and said, The government should seek a pardon from him. You see, for Fred and Catherine, to accept a pardon was to admit that you'd done something wrong in the first place. And Fred had never believed he'd done anything wrong. His actions of avoiding internment were legal as part of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law. And so, on 10th of November 1983, the trial went ahead with Dale Manami leading the way for Fred's Coram Nobis team. They were up against Justice Department lawyer Victor Stone, who represented the government. The courtroom was so packed that they had to take over the largest room in the courthouse to hold the trial. The galleries were filled to capacity with people, mostly Japanese-Americans, who had also been interned at the camps, all wanting to know if this time around their citizenship in the USA would be recognised as equal and the wrongs put against them vindicated. And I found this quite amazing, a true testament to how the passage of time can alter perception. You see, at Fred's first trial in 1944, not a single other Japanese-American had been in the galleries. And now it was full to capacity. And so soon, the trial was underway. The judge outlined the posture of the case. I spoke, Victor Stone spoke, Fred Korematsu spoke, and she rendered her decision then, all in one day. Let's get this right. At Fred's original case at the Supreme Court in 1944, it took two months for the trial to conclude and the judges to make a decision. But now, it was all over in one day. Trial decision and conclusion. Seem a bit fast to you? Yeah, it did to me too. And in fact, it surprised everyone. So much so that Victor Stone, the lawyer representing the government, requested the court to not make any conclusions about what had happened some 40 years ago, and especially not in front of a packed Japanese-American gallery of spectators. He pleaded to the court to not state any findings, but instead to let bygones be bygones in order to let the wounds of the past heal. Let bygones be bygones! <laughs> oh, what an apathetic apology for a lawyer. But don't worry. Manami was soon on his feet, requesting of the court. Well, whose feelings are we talking about? Are we talking about... Uh, the wounds of, of Japanese-Americans who've already been in prison, who've already suffered the losses, who've already suffered the indignity and the humiliation of being in prison? Or are we talking about the reputations of government authorities 
who in essence lied to the Supreme Court uh, as demonstrated by the government's own documents. After Minami had finished his request, Fred asked if he could address the court. Forty years ago, I came into this courtroom in handcuffs and I was sent to a camp. The camp was not fit for human habitation. Horse stalls are for horses, not for people. And then went on to entreat the court to overturn his conviction, saying that what happened to him could happen to every, any American citizen who looks different uh, or who comes from a different country, and that it was important for this court to understand that the relief given to him was not just for him personally, but for, in a sense, the benefit of the whole country. And the galleries erupted in applause. And as soon as the applause had died down, Judge Marilyn Hall Patel gave her ruling. There was sufficient evidence of governmental misconduct, of suppression of evidence, and that the policies of the American government were infected with racism. And as soon as she had finished her ruling, Judge Patel got up from the bench and left the room. Silence fell. But within seconds of the judge's departure, a murmur started to rumble through the room, cascading down from the galleries, and Fred turned to Minami and asked him what had just happened. Fred, you won. Your conviction thrown out. You won. And I just couldn't believe it. It took me quite a while before I actually sunk in that, that I am I am one. After almost 40 years as a convicted criminal, as a brave challenger of the wrongs that had been done to him, he had won. He had been exonerated. In just a few short words from a judge, the government had been proved wrong. He now felt like a true American citizen. As Fred walked from the courtroom, with Yonsei, Sensei and Nisei all clapping him as he shuffled through the hallways, he had one thought. He'd been vindicated, and now he could go back to his life of anonymity with his beloved wife Catherine and his two children, Karen and Ken. And so, that is Fred Korematsu's story. He had battled almost 40 years of injustice, persevered in his quiet, brave, soldiering manner, and in the end, overturned a wrongful conviction against him. Hang on, I can hear you say. You made us wait a week for a second part, only to give us a half-hour episode. <laughs> well, of course not. Because the final part of Fred's story is just beginning. He might have wanted his life to go back to one of obscurity, but life was not about to let him do that. You see, his lawyers, whilst elated at the ruling and Fred's exoneration, realised a flaw. By attacking the conviction under the, the vehicle we were using, we could not overturn the actual Supreme Court ruling that was rendered in 1944. And this is what Bessig, Minami, the ACLU and the Yonsei lawyers had really been aiming for. However, to challenge the Supreme Court again, they needed another test case, such as they'd had with Fred back in 1944. A case that would set a precedent for other cases involving the same question of law. 
a case that may serve as a guide to the likely outcome of subsequent similar situations. And, well, they couldn't bring a test case forward because that would entail a similar situation, such as the internment, happening all over again. And it hadn't happened since, so their hands were tied. And so they had to step down from their cause. Fred, in the meantime, had become a national hero. His voice and presence was requested at events all over the country. He became a beacon of hope to other ethnic groups in the United States that felt, lived and experienced daily the systematic undercurrents of racial targeting and tensions. And this time, his voice and presence didn't fade with the passage of time. He became an icon among civil right groups. At first, Fred shied away from this publicity. He'd exonerated himself. He was no longer a convict. But as he knew that there was no way to overturn the Supreme Court's verdict, he realised that with his new role afforded to him, he now had the power and the wherewithal to make significant changes in America. Not just for the Japanese Americans, but for all ethnic and religious minorities. And so, it wasn't long before Fred embraced his role as a civil rights champion. He became an active member of the ACLU and the JCLA, the Japanese Community Legal Association, and the National Coalition for Redress and Reparations. He spearheaded a campaign through these groups that began heavily lobbying the US government to pass the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. The Japanese Americans had received an apology from Ford in 1976, but the act that Fred was pushing through the Congress would make them put their money where their mouth was, literally. And so, in 1988, five years after his exoneration, President Reagan, under pressure from Fred, went on to make a landmark decision. My fellow Americans, we gather here today to right a grave wrong. More than 40 years ago, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry living in the United States were forcibly removed from their homes and placed in makeshift internment camps. This action was taken without trial, without jury. It was based solely on race, for these 120,000 were Americans of Japanese descent. The legislation that I am about to sign provides for a restitution payment to each of the 60,000 survivors. Japanese surviving Japanese Americans of the 120,000 who were relocated or detained. Yet no payment can make up for those lost years. So what is most important in this bill has less to do with property than with honor. For here we admit a wrong. Here we reaffirm our commitment as a nation to equal justice. Retribution to the remaining survivors of the interned Japanese Americans in the form of 4.8 billion dollars. A very overdue, appropriate gesture. Go Fred. However, whilst these gestures from Ford and now Reagan showcased a more progressive America, the Japanese Americans, the civil rights groups, and pretty much every ethnic and religious group in the USA, still had grave concerns. You see, 
Remember when I said that the lawyers needed to find a test case in order to challenge the Supreme Court's 1944 decision, and that the lawyers were unable to find one, so they had to step down from their cause? Well, there was a reason they were so desperate to find a way to go back and challenge the Supreme Court. We could not overturn the actual Supreme Court ruling that was rendered in 1944. That was our greatest hope, but we could not find legal vehicle to do so. So the Supreme Court precedent still stands as a legal precedent. The Supreme Court's decision still stood, meaning that it was still legal to intern American citizens if the government deemed them to be a threat. I kid you not. This is the 1980s, I must remind you, not the 1940s, and there was still absolutely no mechanism in the American legal and justice system to challenge the Supreme Court over this blatant, potentially racist fueled loophole. The principle that you can still single out people on the basis of their race, their ancestry, is a principle that Fred's lawyers felt was very dangerous and subversive to the Constitution, and would pave the way to allow this to happen to other ethnic groups in the United States but there was nothing they could do. They had no vehicle to challenge the decision without a test case. But their one consolation was that, in this slowly progressing America, such an interment simply wouldn't be allowed to happen again. The people wouldn't stand for it. The media would rabble-rouse against the government if they tried to lock up their own citizens again. So, surely... This wouldn't, and couldn't, happen again. And in the years after Fred's win, and the landmark Reagan ruling, it certainly seemed as though that ominous Supreme Court decision was being chalked up to a terrible miscarriage of civil liberties, and one that wouldn't be repeated. By now, Fred had become a civil rights champion. He was invited to speak at conventions, schools and colleges across the country, and not just because of his landmark case, but also because he was now considered a revered historical figure. And, in fact, Fred's name was becoming synonymous with other famous figures from history, ordinary people just like Fred who'd made a passive stance against an injustice that ignited a heroic battle and became the catalyst for much-needed change. And so, in the long history of our country's constant search for justice, some names of ordinary citizens stand for millions of souls. Plessy, Brown, Parks. To that distinguished list, today we add the name of Fred Korematsu. President Clinton awarded Fred the Presidential Medal of Freedom, an award that recognises those whom have made an exceptional contribution to the security or national interests of the United States, world peace, cultural or other significant public or private endeavours. It is the nation's highest civilian honour. Way to go, Fred. Fred loved his new role loved the fact that instead of being a pariah in the Japanese-American community, as he had been some half a century earlier, he was now seen as a leader amongst them, 
a defender of their freedoms and their rights as citizens. Fate had really done a 180 for Fred, and with each speech that he gave, each school that he visited, he kept seeing a more progressive and inclusive America growing before his eyes. Until one day. Two years ago, I spoke at the um, University of Michigan, and we were going through there with the group of us. And all of a sudden, there was another group. Uh, students came from the other end, about 15 of them. And they surrounded me and said, uh, Fred, we appreciate what you've been doing. And they gave me a certificate, and it was the Arab students of Michigan. It was early 1991, and the Gulf War had just begun. Whilst 35 nations joined forces to fight the enemy, the USA led the way in the fight against Iraq. The war was a result of Iraq's invasion and annexation of Kuwait, which arose from oil pricing disputes. There had been much prepping for the war, and toing and froing between the UN, world leaders, and the then President of Iraq, Saddam Hussein to cede control of Kuwait. But, by early January 1991, Hussein had ignored all global requests for cessation. And so, on the 17th of January 1991, the war commenced in full fury with the deployment of Desert Storm, an aerial and naval bombardment of Iraq. As the war raged over in the Gulf, anti-Muslim sentiment was growing in the USA. Of course, as always, rebel roused by the media. As racial tensions grew, and anti-Islamic racial tensions intensified, the government knew they were potentially facing a problem on the home front, and on the foreign front. Once the aerial bombing of Iraq had ceased, a ground assault started on the 24th of February, 1991, thus putting American soldiers into the heartland of the enemy literally, into the belly of the beast. And knowing that Hussein didn't always like to play by the gentleman's rules of war, the American government had concerns about what would happen to the US soldiers if they were caught by the Iraqis. And so... There was discussion that if any American prisoners were taken in the war, in Desert Storm, that there would be a roundup of uh, Iraqis as a, a trade-off of POWs. And this was perfectly legal because of that Supreme Court decision against Fred Korematsu that still stood. And an anti-Muslim sentiment only grew throughout the years, burrowing itself like a worm into the social fabric of American society, just like it had with the anti-Japanese sentiment prior to World War II. Fred, seeing this all-too-familiar pattern emerging, just as he had experienced in his youth, saw his beloved homeland marching towards a foregone conclusion in relation to Muslim Americans. But surely, it wouldn't and couldn't happen again. Unfortunately, the court has not ever overturned or had the occasion to overturn the Korematsu decision. So technically, it stays on the books, and it lies around like a loaded weapon, ready for the hand of any authority with a plausible reason. Well, we may say, of course, this isn't going to happen again. We're a much more decent, tolerant society today. Uh, but 
to think that history can never repeat itself is is not something we should do. Yes. It could happen again. All because it was still legal. And so, Fred campaigned harder, took on more invitations to speak, honing his story to be an instrument to show what this kind of fear-mongering and bias could ultimately achieve. Asking the question wherever he went, would you, in turn, your fellow American? And like everything else with Fred, he felt that his slow, brave, methodical rhetoric was permeating the fabric of society, one speech at a time. He felt like he just might be turning the tide on this newfound target for racial and religious bias in America. But then, something happened. Something so big that even Fred's empowering speeches fell on deaf ears. Something that to the Muslim communities must have been akin to the Pearl Harbor experience for the Japanese Americans in 1941. The bomb just went off in the World Trade Center. It's like, it's unbelievable. It looked like an airplane crashed into the building. Thank God it wasn't terrorists, though. What is that falling? Is that a person? Where? I'm falling. savage attack on the United States, one of four attacks made on the country that day. 2,977 souls were lost, and more than 6,000 were injured. This was the deadliest attack on US mainland in history. As the nation rallied and recoiled in horror and fear, within 24 hours of the attack, President George Bush Jr. announced... The deliberate and deadly attacks which were carried out yesterday against our country were more than acts of terror. They were acts of war. This will require our country to unite in steadfast determination and resolve. Freedom and democracy are under attack. The American people need to know we're facing a different enemy than we have ever faced. This enemy hides in shadows and has no regard for human life. This is an enemy who preys on innocent and unsuspecting people, then runs for cover. But it won't be able to run for cover forever. This is an enemy that tries to hide, but it won't be able to hide forever. This enemy attacked not just our people, but all freedom-loving people everywhere in the world. The United States of America will use all our resources to conquer this enemy. We will rally the world and we will be steadfast in our determination. But we will not allow this enemy to win the war by changing our way of life or restricting our freedoms. This battle will take time and resolve, but make no mistake about it, we will win. America is going forward, and as we do so, we must remain keenly aware of the threats to our country. 
Those in authority should take appropriate precautions to protect our citizens. Bush had declared war on Al-Qaeda, a war on terrorism, which a shell-shocked reeling nation embraced. But as rousing as the President's words were in terms of standing up to an enemy, they also identified that the enemy was Muslim. And many have argued that his last statement those in authority should take appropriate precautions to protect our citizens could be euphemized as we can take authority against anyone who is against us whether that be homegrown or foreign and so inevitably what also built up in the wake of 9-11 was a huge anti-muslim sentiment and a racial bias on a scale seen only once before that against the japanese americans after pearl harbor and as Fred saw the racial tensions spewing out of the TV and onto the streets, his heart was heavy. After all his battles, his long journey to right the wrongs against ethnic citizens of the United States, to Fred, it looked like history was about to repeat itself. And he wasn't wrong. The U.S. Military Detention Center at Guantanamo Bay is the symbol of everything the country has done wrong in response to the September 11th attacks. That's according to a bipartisan group of former officials and academics who say it's time for the U.S. to face up to its past. The group reviewed U.S. detention and rendition practices since September 11th and concluded U.S. interrogators committed torture while questioning detainees. The top U.S. leadership must be held responsible for that torture. And there's no proof the torture provided authorities with any information to prevent future attacks. Soon after 9-11, the United States government began detaining people who fit the profile of the suspected hijackers. Mostly male, Arabic or Muslim non-citizens. No one really knew who these men were. What happened at Guantanamo Bay was a heavily guarded secret. And the only snippet of information given to the public was that the Bush administration considered the detainees to be the worst of the worst. However, over the months and years after the detainment camp's inception in January 2002, information did begin to leak out to the media and to civil rights groups across America. Guantanamo Bay was holding 800 prisoners at its peak, and of those 800, only seven had actually been convicted in a court of law. The rest of them had all been detained without due process. And Fred couldn't believe it. How could history be forgotten so quickly? But Fred realised that the time had come whereby the power of his speeches alone was not enough to counteract this mounting tidal wave of fear and injustice that was once again repeating itself. Action needed to be taken to remind the government that not only what they were doing was very wrong, but they were doing it all over again. They were repeating one of the most sorrowful and unjust periods in American history. And so, Fred joined forces with the Centre for Constitutional Rights also known as CCR, whom as early as February 2002 were filing the first cases to challenge the unlawful detentions at the base. In particular, the story of three young men really stuck out to Fred, and reading through their case file, he realised 
that their story was a mirror image of his own, half a century earlier. There were three normal young men, whom lived normal lives, but found themselves inadvertently in the wrong place, at the wrong time, in a country at war. And because they looked like the enemy, they were treated like the enemy. Ruhal Ahmed, Asif Iqbal and Shafiq Rasul, all in their early twenties, were childhood friends from Tipton in the West Midlands in the UK. Their parents had migrated to the UK from Pakistan 30 years earlier, and all three were born in England. Ruhal worked at a post office, Iqbal for his father, and Shafiq was at university. In late September 2001, all three travelled to Pakistan for Iqbal's arranged marriage to a young lady from his father's home village. And of course, he wanted his two best friends, Ruhal and Shafiq, as his best men. They decided to make an extended vacation out of the trip and planned to stay for a month. It was the first time any of them were visiting Pakistan, the birthplace of their parents, and they wanted to learn more about their parents' upbringing, the culture of the country, and to meet extended family that they'd never met before. The village where they were staying was very close to the border with Afghanistan. And so... We were getting the chance to go to Afghanistan for like a few days, see the country, then come back. And the day that we arrived in Afghanistan is when the bombing started. And it was just... We didn't know what was going on. We were scared. There was bombs being dropped everywhere. The first reaction by seeing an American soldier is, you know, you think basically I'm saved by the bell, but which wasn't the case. You know, the first thing they, 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 they took us, they stripped us down uh, naked um, and they tied our hands behind our backs. A sack was put over our head. Guards would walk past and kick you and punch you. They want answers which you can't give them because you, you have no involvement in anything. And that kind of mental torture is a hundredfold worse than physical torture because you don't know what's going on. You, you're worried about your family, if they're alive, if they're okay, and you have no contact with them. You're sitting in this cell, and w the only thing you can do is start hitting your head off the floor. We were never charged of any crime, um, never given an explanation why we were arrested in the first place. Rahul, Asif and Shafiq were rounded up by American soldiers as they entered Afghanistan on October 7th, 2001. Even though they obviously spoke English and tried to reason and explain their presence as tourists in Afghanistan to the soldiers, their pleas fell on deaf ears. They were detained in Shebegan prison in northern Afghanistan. They didn't speak Arabic and so they couldn't communicate with the guards at the prison to understand what was happening to them. They remained in this hell for three months until, in January 2002, they were rounded up again, put on a plane and sent to Guantanamo Bay. They were among the first prisoners to arrive at the camp in Cuba. Once the three realised they were now in American possession, they once again began pleading their case. But as you heard, the guards at Guantanamo Bay didn't want to hear it so they asked if they could have access to a lawyer, as they knew they'd been unlawfully interned. But once again, they were denied. In fact, all detainees at Guantanamo Bay, whether guilty or innocent, were denied access to counsel, 
the right to trial or knowledge of the charges against them. They were deemed as an enemy of the state and a threat to national security, and therefore were stripped of all their rights, whether they were American or foreign. They were subjected to repeated beatings, sleep deprivation, extremes of hot and cold, forced nakedness, death threats, interrogations at gunpoint, menacing with unmuzzled dogs, and racial and religious harassment. However, over in the UK, the families of the boys had been informed of their son's detainment. Shafiq's father immediately began reaching out to the media and legal and civil rights organisations in the USA to find help for the boys. And one of the organisations that heard their plea was the CCR, and of course, Fred. And between them, they recognised the uncanny similarity in Fred's case half a century earlier, and they were only too willing to help these families attain justice. Because it had been Shafiq's family that had worked predominantly with Fred and the CCR, the writ they filed became known as Shafiq Rasul versus George W. Bush. And it was actually the first petition of habeas corpus, which is the reporting of an unlawful imprisonment, on behalf of Guantanamo Bay detainees. But it wouldn't be the last. And so, on the 19th of February 2002, Shafiq's writ was petitioned to a federal court, alleging that the government had not allowed him to speak at all to friends, family or lawyers. They had not given him any hearing whatsoever on the question of whether he was an enemy combatant in the war. And the case, as usual, ambled through the federal courts, until November 2003, when the case went in front of the last federal court of which uh, it ruled in favour of the government, for the exact same reason they had against Fred in 1944, that under the guise of war, those suspected of being an enemy can be detained. The CCR were disappointed. They felt they'd had a clad iron case. But Fred reassured them, just as Bessig had reassured him all those years ago. Yes, they'd lost a battle, but they needed to lose it in order to win the war. And they would only win the war in the Supreme Court. So, they battled on. But all the while, Shafiq, Asif and Ruhal languished in Guantanamo Bay. By late 2003, the case was finally nearing the Supreme Court and Fred felt like he had to do something more, something extra to assist the case, to remind the court and the judges of what precedent they would once again be setting if they ruled against the habeas corpus plea. And so, he garnered support from a lawyer and filed an amicus curie to the Supreme Court. An amicus curie is a person who is not a party to a case, but who assists a court by offering information, expertise, or insight that has a bearing on the issues in the case. The decision on whether to consider an amicus brief lies within the discretion of the court. But Fred's name, his history, his work as an advocate for civil rights was not lost on the court. And neither was the long shadow of the injustice caused 
by the ruling against him in his 1944 trial. And so they listened to Fred, who told them they were about to repeat history and make the same mistake all over again, some 50 years later. In a landmark decision of a 6-3 ruling on June 30th, 2004, the Supreme Court ruled that the men did have the right to challenge their detention. <laughs> They'd won. The implication of the decision was that hundreds of foreign nationals held at the camp now had a legal right to challenge their imprisonment. Once again, go Fred. Shafiq, Asif and Ruhal were released from Guantanamo Bay and sent back to the UK. Despite winning the case against the Supreme Court, the US still held charges over the three men, but these were referred to the UK to deal with. And the day after they returned to the UK, the British government lifted all charges levied against them. The three men became known in the UK as the Tipton Three and went on to make a documentary called The Road to Guantanamo Bay, which it is a harrowing account of how three normal young men ended up in one of the worst prisons in the Western world because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time and they looked like the enemy. But Fred, well, at 84, he'd done it again. He'd won a second landmark case against civil injustice. And do you think he stopped there? <laughs> oh, no. In late 2004, he filed another amicus curiae to the Supreme Court, this time in support of Khalid al-Oda versus the United States. Kuwait native Khalid al-Oda was the father of Guantanamo Bay detainee Fauzi al-Oda whom, like Asif, Ruhal and Shafiq, had been detained without due process. Fred appealed to the Supreme Court via his amicus curie and warned the government's extreme national security measures were reminiscent of the past. Sadly, Fred didn't get to see the outcome of this trial. On March 30th, 2005, Fred passed away surrounded by his family in Oakland, California. A warrior, an icon, a pioneer for civil rights, was gone. But Fred continues to fight from beyond the grave. The very mention of his name inspires hope and determination in so many whom feel persecuted, victimised or passed over by the law. In fact, his name has grown in such propensity since his death that in 2009, the Fred T. Korematsu Discovery Academy opened. It is a non-profit organisation which advances pan-ethnic civil rights and human rights through education. Very nice, right on your heart. Korematsu, we stand up for what is right. At Fred T. Korematsu Discovery Academy in East Oakland, Kids start the day with a pledge that emphasizes morality and courage. We chose the name Fred Korematsu because we really felt like the attributes that he showed in his work are things that the children need to learn, is that common people can stand up and make differences in a large number of people's lives. Later that year, 
the Korematsu Center for Law and Equity opened at Seattle University. And in 2010, Karen, Fred's daughter, launched the Korematsu Institute to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the removal of her father's conviction. The Institute sends out free Korematsu teaching kits to classrooms around California. In addition, they campaign to the state of California to have a day that recognised civil liberties. And so, in 2010, the state of California passed the Fred Korematsu Day Bill, making January 30th Fred's birthday, the first day in the US named after an Asian American. Since then, similar Korematsu Days have been designated in Utah, Hawaii, New York, Georgia, Virginia and Illinois. Fred Korematsu was the first Asian American to have a statewide day named after him. So he's an inspiration to all. The Japanese American incarceration of World War II was not just a West Coast story or a Japanese American story. It's an American story. And we need to teach the lessons of history so that we can participate in civic engagement and participation in a purposeful way. We need to carry on the, the conversation. With each year that passes, Fred's legacy just seems to continue to inspire people of all backgrounds and faiths and demonstrates the importance of speaking up to fight injustice. I do have to take a moment to point out that Fred wasn't the only one to fight the injustice placed on the Japanese Americans in World War II. There were several others, but there's one in particular I'd like to share with you, because out of them all, they get the least limelight. Mitsuyi Endo, from Sacramento, California, was 22 when Executive Order 9066 forced her and her family to be interned. A San Francisco attorney, James Purcell, recognised the internment as a violation of a citizen's constitutional rights. He set out to take a test case to the Supreme Court, and Mitsuyi was a willing participant. And so, a writ of habeas corpus started making its way through the courts. As with Fred's case, Mitsui's case also ambled through failed trial after failed trial until it made its way to the Supreme Court in October 1944. With the US government now facing two potential Supreme Court cases of violation of 14th Amendment rights, Koromatsu and now Endo, the War Relocation Authority were advised to offer Endo and her family release from internment if the case was dropped. Mitsui refused. Her refusal to drop the case extended her internment by two years. Mitsui's case argued something slightly different to Fred's case. Her lawyer, Purcell, was arguing that the camp should be closed altogether because they were unconstitutional to American citizens. It became known as the ex-party Endo case. As the trial was reaching its conclusion, with the decision set to be delivered on the 19th of December, 1944, something happened that would unfortunately take the shine off her case. One of the Supreme Court judges in the Endo case allegedly 
tipped off the Roosevelt administration of what the outcome of the case would be. Roosevelt and his administration had two pending civil rights Supreme Court cases about to deliver verdicts, Endo and Korematsu. With Fred's decision due to be delivered on the 18th of December, the day before Mitsuya's conclusion. And if you remember from last week, Fred lost his case against the Supreme Court on the 18th of December 1944, and immediately after the ruling, the government announced it would be closing all camps at the end of 1944. And so... The media headlines blared for days about Fred's loss against the Supreme Court and the government's benevolent decision to end the internment. And they flourished these headlines so much so that Missouri's actual win against the Supreme Court, and yes, she won, was met with little fanfare because the government, by announcing the closing of the camps just the day before her ruling, had vetoed the validity of her case. But don't worry. Whilst Mitsui Endo did not get her moment to shine after the Supreme Court win, civil rights activists over the years, especially Fred, have championed her name, so that now today, her name and her story is taught and shared alongside Fred's and all the other brave men and women of the United States who did something ordinary that turned into the extraordinary, that helped shape a nation. Now, we know how Fred's unwavering lifetime battle for civil rights and his two landmark victories against internment of citizens and non-citizens without due process has shaped and changed the minds of America. So, how has this changed the minds of the people at the top? The decision-makers, the lawmakers, the presidents. Hmm? As Americans, we insist that nobody should be targeted because of who they are or what they look like, who they love, how they worship. We stand united against these hateful acts. We're all one family. These are the freedoms and the ideals and the values that we uphold. President Obama was an advocate for civil rights and always proffered the mantra of a one family nation. However, in 2012, a lawsuit was filed called Hedges v. Obama. Christopher Hedges was a New York Times reporter and his writ challenged that Obama's new National Defense Authorization Act permitted the US government to indefinitely detain suspected terrorists, essentially without due process. Fred's name and legacy were brought up in the trial as a reminder to the Supreme Court to be heeded by the mistakes of the past. However, Hedges lost the case, on the basis that as an American-born white journalist, he had no right to sue because he could not show that he was actually at risk of being targeted by the policy. <laughs> Unbelievable. Things really hadn't changed in half a century. But some lawyers realised the flaw in the ruling, how it could, if not overturned, allow history to repeat itself. And so, these lawyers challenged the verdict in a letter to the Solicitor General. 
They stated that this verdict lay open the possibility to detain persons of non-white ethnic lineages simply because, as in Fred's case, they looked like the enemy. And in order to right the wrongs of the past and ensure the same mistakes weren't allowed to recur under the guise of law and war. And they challenged that the Supreme Court now had the opportunity to correct and formally overrule its decisions in internment cases. In particular, the Koromatsu case. Eleven attorneys signed their name to the letter. And the response they got from the Obama administration? Well, it didn't address overturning Koromatsu versus the United States. In fact, that plea was completely ignored. Instead, citing that the Obama administration, urging the Supreme Court to turn aside a new challenge to presidential power to detain individuals suspected of terrorism links, does not support the campaign to get the court to repudiate one of its most heavily criticised opinions from the World War II era. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Unbelievable. This was the first opportunity since 1944 whereby a legal stand could be made to overturn the Korematsu case, and it was ignored by the President. <laughs> but maybe the next President would put their mark on America and overturn one of the worst civil injustices in the country's history. Specifically, how do you actually get them registered into a database? It would be just good management. What you have to do is good management procedures. And we can do that. And do, you, do you go to mosques and sign these people up? And the different places. You sign them up at different, but it's all about management. Our country has no management. Would they have to legally be in this database? Would they, be there they have to be. Let me just tell you, the, the key is people can come to the country, but they have to come in legally. Thank you very much. I know the ACLU is going to challenge it, but I think it'll pass. And we've done it with Iran back uh, back a, a while ago. We did it during World War II with Japanese, which, you know, call it what you Come will. On. Maybe, maybe you're, not, you're not proposing we go back to the days of internment camps, I hope. I'm just saying there is precedent. But in this case, I absolutely believe that a regional base... You can't be citing base... Japanese internment camps as precedent for anything the president-elect is going to do. Look. Trump wanted to affect a registry on all Muslims in the United States when he became president. However, he was only president-elect at this point in time. But as we all know, he became president. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. Hmm. In January 2017, President Trump evoked Executive Order 13769, which placed stringent restrictions on travel to the United States for citizens of Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria and Yemen. It became known as the Muslim Ban and caused great uproar in the US and across the world. It was seen on an international scale and a domestic scale, as an order that demonised the vulnerable, those who have fled torturers, warlords and dictators, and those who simply want to be with their families. 
it was essentially a license to discriminate, disguised as a national security measure. Immediately, the federal courts tried to stop the ban, and they succeeded. But Trump would just change the order and re-effect it. And each time he changed it, the federal courts rallied to try stop the ban. So with the court attempts repeatedly failing, a judge in Seattle sought a different method to stop the ban. He issued a temporary restraining order. And guess what? It worked. However, the president did not take this order well. I think that it's been an important reminder to all Americans that we have a judiciary that has taken far too much power and become, in many cases, a supreme branch of government. One unelected judge in Seattle cannot remake laws for the entire country. The idea that you're going to have a judge in Seattle say that a foreign national living in Libya has an effective right to enter the United States is beyond anything we've ever seen before. The end result of this, though, is that our opponents, the media, and the whole world will soon see as we begin to take further actions, that the powers of the president to protect our country are very substantial and will not be questioned. Whoa. Oh, goodness. Essentially, a White House advisor had just stated that the president's executive powers will not be questioned. If the president can't be held accountable, does that not make for a dangerous president? Hmm? So how did Trump react? Well, he introduced a new ban, but this time it was even more punitive. It closed the gap on what the term family meant, thus allowing less foreign relatives of current citizens of the USA to emigrate. And it also said that refugees may also be banned. Now, you may be thinking right about now, how and why does Trump's travel ban have anything to do with Fred Korematsu and his case? He was a citizen. Those whom Trump was looking to ban were foreigners. Well, stick with me. It's about to get bumpy, but you'll see soon enough just how pertinent this ban is to Fred's story. Because Trump redrafted and changed the travel ban executive order, it deemed the temporary ban useless, as it only applied to the previous draft of the order. And so, Derek Watson of the United States District Court for Hawaii issued another temporary restraining order on Trump's latest ban, but he added a caveat that the previous restraint hadn't included. It claimed that the Muslim ban was a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution. The Establishment Clause, amongst other things, prohibits the government from intentionally discriminating among religions. That is, preferring one religion over another. And Trump's travel ban certainly seemed to discriminate against Muslims and prefer other religions over theirs. Because a constitutional violation was at the heart of the order, the case went to the Supreme Court in March 2018 in Hawaii versus Trump. And on June 28, 
2018, the Supreme Court revealed their decision. Supreme Court upholds Trump travel ban, President Trump tweeted. Wow. Led by Chief Justice John Roberts, the court's conservatives said the ban is legal as a presidential act to protect national security. The fact that uh, today's Supreme Court ruling uh, a tremendous success, a tremendous victory for the American people and for our Constitution. This is a great victory for our Constitution. <sighs> the court ruled five to four in favor of the ban, citing that quite apart from the religious hostility, it was based on legitimate concerns for national safety. But obviously, with a 5-4 to four vote, four judges did not vote in favour of the ban. Now, when a Supreme Court judge is not in favour of a ruling, they have the option to state that they respectfully dissent, or, if they fervently oppose it, they will say they just dissent. However, one judge in the court that day more than vehemently opposed the ruling. To her, the ruling and the ban violated the very purpose and foundation of the Constitution and was reminiscent and recurrent of the dark vestiges of American history, in which this ruling appended all the progress the country had achieved in the last almost 75 years. And so, she took the opportunity to vocalise her dissent, to say something that was truly unprecedented and, well, just unbelievable in a Supreme Court. She said, wait, I'll let you hear it for yourself. The First Amendment stands as a bulwark against official religious prejudice and embodies our nation's deep commitment to religious plurality and tolerance. That constitutional promise is why, for centuries now, people have come to this country from every corner of the world to share in the blessing of religious freedom. Instead of vindicating those principles, today's decision tosses them aside. In holding that the First Amendment gives way to an executive policy that a reasonable observer would view as motivated by animus against Muslims, the majority opinion upends this court's precedent, repeats tragic mistakes of the past, and denies countless individuals the fundamental right of religious liberty. Today's holding is all the more troubling given the stark parallels between the reasoning of this case and that of Korematsu versus United States, 1944. In Korematsu, the court gave a pass to an odious, gravely injurious racial classification authorized by an executive order. As here, the government invoked an ill-defined national security threat to justify an exclusionary policy of sweeping proportion. As here, the exclusion order was rooted in dangerous stereotypes about a particular group's supposed inability to assimilate and desire to harm the United States. As here, the government was unwilling to reveal its own intelligence agency's views of the alleged security concerns to the very citizens it purported to protect. And as here, there was strong evidence that impermissible hostility and animus motivated the government's policy. In the intervening years since Korematsu, our nation has done much to leave its sordid legacy behind. Today, the court takes the important step of finally overruling Korematsu, denouncing it as gravely, gravely wrong the day it was decided. This formal repudiation of a shameful precedent is laudable and long overdue, but it does not make the majority's decision here acceptable or right. By blindly accepting the government's misguided invitation to sanction a discriminatory policy motivated by animosity toward a disfavored group, 
all in the name of a superficial claim of national security, the court redeploys the same dangerous logic underlying Korematsu and merely replaces one gravely wrong decision with another. Our Constitution demands and our country deserves a judiciary willing to hold the coordinate branches to account when they defy our most sacred legal commitments. Because the court's decision today has failed in that respect, with profound regret, I dissent. Justice Sonia Sotomayor had just overturned the Korematsu versus the United States ruling. After almost 75 years of this dark cloud hanging over America's justice system, and its historical civil liberty injustices. One brave woman had championed and highlighted the battle of one brave man and the injustices placed on him and the Japanese-American people to prove that America would no longer hide behind a guise of war, hostility and security to infer injustices on people of any faith, creed or religion. That America really was the land of the free, and most definitely, the home of the brave. I just wish Fred had been alive to see this momentous day. And that is Fred's story. A quiet, ordinary man who went on to do something extraordinary, whose lifelong battle for justice is a constant reminder to us all that while we may sometimes be afraid during times of crisis, Fear should not prevail over our fundamental freedoms. We too, like Fred, need to be brave and face the battle no matter how long, how arduous or how unfair the journey for justice is. Because it is these ordinary, unassuming, brave acts that challenge the powers that be and right the wrongs for so many and protects and defends the priceless freedom and rights for all. Today, Fred Korematsu is seen as, as a hero, uh, as he should be. Fred was the ordinary person who, at a time of great crisis, rises to extraordinary heights. Fred reminded me very much of somebody else, and that's Rosa Parks, the woman who refused to sit in the back of a bus in Birmingham, Alabama. And it's ordinary people like that just making a stand. And it's usually something very simple, like going to work. Uh, Fred wanted to stay in his home. That's all he wanted to do. It's the right that every American has. But it's that kind of person, ordinary people who do extraordinary things, that really shape our history. Fred Korematsu, sir, you are a hero. May you now rest in peace. Before I get onto my usual thanks and pronunciation faux pas, Darkside will be going out to a different tune today. No, I haven't changed my theme music. This is something I've put together in honour of all the ordinary Americans who have fought and are still fighting to this day for their right to freedom, to life, to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Lest we never forget what the people that came before us did to pursue the liberties that we all enjoy today. And now, yes, sadly, I know, you hate it, is that time of the show where I'm probably asking for a lobotomy in Lithuanian rather than thanking listeners from their respective countries. Oh yes, it's on to the country thanks. So this week, 
I'd like to thank Mexico, Hola e gracias, and Croatia, Stravazo e Havalabam. <laughs> Yikes. You know, I'm doing my best, right? Doesn't sound like it. I know, yeah. But I try. If you like today's story or this podcast in general, would you mind leaving a review at Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast? You would be making one little podcaster whom is surrounded by the joys of spring. And by joys, I mean noise. Specifically that of a robin nesting right outside my window that seems to love the sound of my voice when I'm recording and tweets even louder. So it has taken me twice as long to try and edit out all their little chirps. Very happy. They were actually louder than usual this week. I think that's because they approve of Fred's story. If you agree with the Robins, go on, leave me a review. I know you want to. And why don't you come join me on Facebook and Instagram? Just look up Darkside. Love to have you along for the ride. And with that said, season one of Darkside has come to a close. I hope you enjoyed the ride so far. But don't worry, I'll be back before you know it with more stories of righting the wrongs of the world to bring to your lovely ears. But until then, please don't forget to stay safe, stay alert. Suits, over and out for season one. We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. In order to form a more perfect union. Establish justice. Ensure domestic tranquility. And secure the blessings of liberty. And secure the blessings of liberty. To ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this constitution. <laughs>